Welcome to tonight's Saturday Night Special, episode 180. I'm Leo Marte. I challenge you to invest in yourself, invest in others, develop your influence, and impact the world by using your time, your talent, and your treasures to live out your calling. Having the ability to work to transfer more than just money, but values is key. And one way to be inspired to do that is to listen to this, the Inspired Stewardship Podcast with my friend, Scott Mater. And God wants you to be a co-participant in the work that he is doing. And part of that is using the resources that he has given you through your talent and through your individual work. Because there's, there's both parts to that, right? If you do nothing, you can be the most talented person, but you will not be very successful if you just sit on your couch all day and do nothing with it. Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. If you truly desire to become the person who God wants you to be, then you must learn to use your time, your talent, and your treasures for your true calling. In the Inspired Stewardship Podcast, you will learn to invest in yourself, invest in others, and develop your influence so that you can impact the world. In tonight's Saturday Night Special, I interview Leo Marte. Leo shares with you how he launched his own advisory firm to work with Christian investors and how his faith journey intersected with that decision. Leo also shares why investing should be different as a Christian. And I also asked Leo to share with you why you may want to work with a professional to help with your money and how he can help you if you want to do it yourself. One reason I like to bring you great interviews like the one you're going to hear today is because of the power in learning from others. Another great way to learn from others is through reading books. But if you're like most people today, you find it hard to find the time to sit down and read. And that's why today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Go to inspiredstewardship.com slash audible to sign up and you can get a 30-day free trial. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from. And instead of reading, you can listen your way to learn from some of the greatest minds out there. That's inspiredstewardship.com slash audible to get your free trial and listen to great books the same way you're listening to this podcast. Leo Marte runs an investment advisory firm as a certified financial planner that provides personal CFO services to Christian professionals. He helps you plan for the future, invest your assets, and manage your taxes so you can honor God and build generational wealth. He currently resides in North Carolina with his wife and two beautiful children. Welcome to the show, Leo. Hey, thanks for having me, Scott. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I mentioned a little bit in the intro about that you're running your own investment advisory firm as a CFP and you're working with Christian professionals. Can you talk a little bit about what brought you to the point of doing that work and focusing on Christian prof professionals? What did you do before and what brought you here? So for a little over a decade before I started my firm, I worked at a very large company, Vanguard, which most of your listeners are probably at least familiar with, or if not, have at least heard that name on the street. And when I was working in that firm, Vanguard has always been focused on serving the masses. It's, uh, it's really a a model for scale. 
it's narrowly focused on cost, diversification, some of those principles that apply to everybody everywhere. And I learned a ton in my experience there. I loved working there. I felt like the specifically the ethics of the firm aligned very strongly with my passion to serve people and treat them fairly. As I was maturing in my career in the advice space specifically, I realized that I really enjoyed developing relationships with my clients and going deeper than what the Vanguard model at the time would allow me to do because Vanguard is focused on serving at scale. I wanted to focus on serving a smaller book where I had deeper engagement. And particularly, I felt called to be in a space where I could live out my faith and my principles openly. And that's why I decided to start my firm oriented to working with believers. Now, not all of my clients are believers, um, just for the record. 50% of my clients roughly are what you would consider to be devout Christians. And the other, the rest are people who are at least friendly towards the faith. They don't have any particular objection against it, but they're not what they, they wouldn't consider themselves to be church people or frequent churchgoers, which is great. It's fine. I love serving people that come to me regardless of their faith background, but I just want them to understand who they're working with and where my planning principles are coming from and what kind of experience they can expect when they work with my firm. And that, yeah, I coach in the faith-based community and, you know, about, I'm the same way, really about probably 50% of my clientele is a describe, would self-describe themselves as a Christian. And then the other 50% would probably not necessarily use that term, but it sounds like we're very similar in that what I've been told by people is we're, we came to you because you know who you are, not because it necessarily matches a hundred percent with who we are, but it, it's still in alignment with what they want. So it sounds like you've had some of that same experience. So how did your faith journey bring you to this point? How did the work you were doing as a Christian both at Vanguard and then and now, why? How did that play a part in this? I think, from a faith standpoint, as I mentioned in my in my in the introductory chat that we just had, my faith had a lot of influence in the way that I look at money and the way that I look at planning. Uh, some people ask me why why is it different to be a Christian planner or a planner for Christian people than people who are not. And the, re- the reason there's a difference is because to what end are you accumulating wealth and building wealth? Most people who consider themselves Christians see money as, an, as a means to, a diff- to an end, right? So they don't see the pursuit of the building of wealth as a goal in and of itself just for the sake of enjoyment, although there's nothing wrong with enjoying wealth and the product of your work. But they look at wealth as a tool to um, influence change, to impact people's lives, to continue the work of the gospel. And I think that's where really my faith had a strong impact in my decision to start my own firm as well, because I did want to focus on helping people influence beyond just themselves through the creation of wealth. And by being wise stewards of wealth, I think that they can impact their families, their business fears, their communities, and beyond. Mm-hmm. You just mentioned that Christians kind of look at money a little differently as they look at it as not the goal, but as rather just a tool. How do you actually explore that? 
with folks? Because there's also, I think, within the Christian community, a lot of feeling of, at least I've experienced it, money is bad, money always corrupts you. If you do have any wealth, it automatically must mean that you're evil in some way. And then the converse of that, having no money somehow makes you more holy. How has your experience been when you think about that kind of view within the Christian community? The way I look at it is I first try to ask a very simple question or set of questions to help me understand what your money philosophy is. Because you'd be surprised that depending on your denomination, faith background, whether you came to faith as a child or as an adult, there's a lot of different sources of knowledge around in the Christian church uh, that may or may not align with what you just said, right? So there are people who come from faith backgrounds that believe that entrepreneurship and create and wealth creation is the way to move the kingdom forward. Uh, you, uh, there are other people who come from denominations that strongly believe in the vow of poverty. So it, there is no homogenous belief around money in the Christian church. But what, But one thing that I do try to do is just determine where are people starting from and then help coach them through the process of either augmenting that belief or perhaps challenging some of those beliefs to help them live a more abundant life. So if, for example, you operate out of a mindset that poverty is holiness, chances are you're going to get to your elderly years without having enough money to eat because you're not doing the work today to be able to save so that when you're not able to work anymore, you can live off of that nest egg. So sometimes it's a job of enabling, encouraging, and sometimes it's also challenging, not based on the belief itself, but based on the outcome. Because that's where I think people start thinking about money in a different way. When you start really putting clear outcomes, hey, if you continue in this trajectory, if you continue saving X amount of money, this is what retirement is going to look like. This is what college is going to look like for your kids. This is what's going to look like when you have to go into a nursing home unit. Mm -hmm. So when you start putting clear, specific outcomes, I think that's how you help people who may not have the healthiest views on money start shifting their views in a more healthy direction. So how... When, once someone's been working with you or if someone comes to you and wants to partner with you, how do you see Christians living out their money life differently? When it's working well, in other words, not when there's a problem, but when it's going the way it should, what does that look like? Paint a picture of that. To me, the word that comes immediately to mind is balance. Right. So when I look at a Christian who's exercising healthy, biblically based money principles is someone who is saving for emergencies, saving for the future. Their expenditures their monthly budget reflect their belief system as well. They're giving regularly. They are living below their means so that you know, they're not incurring consumer debt. So all these things that I just mentioned may sound to you like 
generic principles that just about everybody could uh, apply. But if you look deeper into each of those principles, there's actually a wealth of biblical foundation behind that of wisdom that has been tested for thousands of years that Mm -hmm. it works. So to me, it's a picture of balance. And the best illustration that I can think of is the imagery around a large tree where birds and animals of all kinds come to get shaded under this tree, to get fruit from this tree. And that is ultimately what I love to see Christians who are successful with money end up becoming that tree for their families, for their communities, for their churches, for their businesses. They're seen as people who are wise and people flock to them because they're generous, they're giving, and they're open-handed with their blessings. And that is a beautiful image that I think translates really well from from scriptures into yeah, I've actually joked with people that if you want an MBA, rather than go to school and get an MBA, just read Proverbs over and over again. And it's pretty much everything I learned in my MBA program. I don't know about you. It's it's actually in there. It's, it's pretty much in Proverbs, more or less. It, so the this idea then of abundant giving, of being, so it's wealth creation, not so that you can, quote, keep it or hoard it. That doesn't mean you don't have it, some of it. That doesn't mean you don't enjoy it and that kind of thing. How do you think that fits into this idea of creating generational wealth? And what's your view around around creating generational wealth versus, you know, doing something else with it as a family? I think that generational wealth is a natural outcome of the same principle that we discussed up front, which is, If you hold a healthy view of money, money is a means to an end. So it is not ultimately the goal to accumulate X amount of money. That money will enable you to do certain things. So when we look at patterns of wealth creation in in the Bible, a a great example is the patriarchs, right? So when we start with the story of Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, these are men who are incredibly blessed materially. They work very hard to cultivate that wealth as well. They still had to put in the work, but God blessed them with material resources for a purpose. And that they put a strong emphasis on transferring that wealth from one generation to the next so that it's almost you get to point A, and then the next generation's job is to get from point A to point B, And then you pass the baton again, and the next generation's job is to get from B to C. And that is how I look at generational wealth. The purpose of your being blessed with material, material wealth in this world transcends you. So equipping your children and your grandchildren and transferring values, not just transferring money, because guess what? Transferring money is very easy. You just have to die. And somebody's going to take your money. It's mm-hmm. the state, whether it's people who you may or may not agree with or people who you agree with. If, taking you, if you've got a will and a plan and an estate yeah. plan, it's going to happen. And if you don't, it's still going to happen. It's just going to happen a different gonna happen. way. It's going to happen to whom you choose or to whom you didn't choose. Right. So transferring money is not hard. Transferring values is very difficult because each generation and each individual is a product of its own experiences and its own life journey. 
So by dedicating time to training your children and then your children training your grandchildren in transferring those values, then you can guarantee that no matter how much money you pass down is not going to break them, right? That's how you protect yourself against the proverbial person who gets a $5 million inheritance, buys a boat and lives on the lake all day long, just uh, catching the sun because they don't oh, have to trust fund babies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it has know, a negative tough. connotation, doesn't it? You hear the words and immediately people exactly. are like, Oh, I know what those people are. I don't want those people grinds you. But I think what people confuse is that they think, well, everyone who inherits money ends up like this. And that can that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, people who are intentionally building a values inheritance in their family are can be very successful at transferring successful businesses, portfolios, farms, whatever it is that your family is invested in. If you follow the right steps over time to train those next generations, you're absolutely going to be successful at transferring that wealth mm-hmm. successfully. Well, and intentionality, I think, was the key word there because it doesn't happen by accident. Nope. Yeah. Big success never happens by osmosis. It's not mm-hmm. just, hey, I was just sitting on my porch and then I turned out to be in the Super Bowl. That never <laughs> <happens>. <laughs> I was just sitting on my porch and turns out I'm Michael Jordan. Yeah, exactly. Um, everyone thinks of, and that's actually a good example because people think of someone like a Michael Jordan, an incredibly gifted natural athlete. And he is, but he himself talks about standing out there on the front area, making free throw after free throw after free in a high school, in college, practicing, always being there early, always staying late. he took what was already a natural gifting and by cultivating it and being intentional with it created what we all think of as quote Michael Jordan. So I'm showing my age with using him as an example. I'm sure there's better examples from the (laughs) current athletes, but there you go. (laughs) I think he's well known enough that the example is relevant. (laughs) And I'll translate that, that last piece that you mentioned about the free throws and the natural gifting. So Let's translate that to the area of money. Mm-hmm. Let's say that you are a senior executive in a large corporation with substantial compensation, right? Which is usually the types of clients that I tend to work with. You have a natural gifting in certain things, whether it's leadership, analysis, communication. God has given you these gifts, right? And it's put you in a position of influence. But if you're not doing those daily free throws with money, that is the daily mechanics of saving, living below your means, avoiding debt, investing for the future, diversifying. If you're doing, if you're not doing those free throws, you're going to end up at the end of your life having essentially wasted potential, right? Even though you were naturally gifted at all these things and you ended up making a ton of money over your lifetime, you'll end up at the end of your days one wishing that you could get a do-over so that you could have saved more so that you could have a more comfortable retirement with dignity or maybe bless your grandchild with X or Y and Z. So I think that translates really well because money discipline is not something you achieve overnight. Is 30, 40, 50 years of doing those free throws after the game to make sure that you're becoming that Michael Jordan. And it's, again, to, to the point, because... You also mentioned you tend to work with people that, for example, have a very high income. 
I often work with people that have a very high income. However, the people I'm working with are not ready for you yet because oftentimes they're still at the point of, yeah, they make good money, but they're still spending three times what they actually make or they're still and they're in that stage of let's set some foundational steps very quickly they can get to a point where okay now we can we've laid the foundation now we need to start thinking and building for the future as well but oftentimes they're yeah i i I, it's always amazing to me because it's not just an income issue i've had people that make thirty seven thousand dollars a year that are investing regularly for the future. And I've had people that make 350 that are like, I can't find enough money to invest. And it's like, how's that possible? <laughs> yeah. You'd be surprised if in my journey of working with clients over the past 13 years, how many everyday people I've met who are millionaires just because they invested steadily for 30, 40 years, police officers, firefighters, teachers, the people whom you would think don't make enough money to end their life being quote unquote rich. And then to your point, people who are making multiples of that and have very little saved. Almost nothing to show for it at the end of the day. Yeah. So I wanted to circle back to a couple of things we've mentioned and I want to, I want to go to that. How do we pass some of those values to the future? But before we go there, we mentioned a couple of times giving generosity, that idea. How do you think giving fits into Christian money management? Because you're talking about doing those daily reps. Where does giving fit into that mindset? Giving is a principle that I think reflects both changes your heart and your view on money, but also reflects where your heart is and your views on money. So it's like a cyclical skill that, you know, you gain you also get changed in the process. I think most people have heard of the tithe, which is, you know, 10% of your increase given to your local church. That's a guideline and a principle that was inherited from the Old Testament when Israel lived in a primarily agrarian society. So we've, we've transposed that principle into the modern era as a way to give people a a starting point for giving. And some people do focus on that 10%, the expense of paralysis, right? So especially with people who are new to the faith or people who, you know, who for some reason their faith journey just is just not there yet for them to make that decision. I think people sometimes focus or obsess to the point where it becomes counterproductive. So my 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 guidance to people is out of everything that you have, I want you to think about giving something because you have to, or because there is a law that says that you have to give something, but because it's good for your soul, it's good for your heart. And it's actually going to, it is going to send a clear message of where your heart is ultimately. And Hey, if that is 2% and that's all your heart is able to give right now, start and then Let's stretch you and let's challenge you over time. So maybe when you get your next raise out of that next three, four percent increase, hey, how about we we amp that up two percent higher? Now we're at four. And then over time, I don't want you to stop at 10%. I want you to give even more. 
if that's where God's leading your heart to go. But I think sometimes people focus too much on the number instead of focusing on the principle. And I think ultimately what God wants is the heart, not your money. God is not out for your money. God doesn't need your money. And if God wanted your money, God could just take your money. He would take it. Yeah. And sometimes people think of God as the IRS, right? Like <laughs> you just get your money taken out before it even gets to your hand and you know you have no voice or vote on it. And God wants you to be a co-participant in the work that he is doing. And part of that is using the resources that he has given you through your talent and through your individual work, because there's there's both parts to that, right? If you do nothing, you can be the most talented person, but you will not be very successful if you just sit on your couch all day and do nothing with it. But I think there's, there's got to be a recognition that if money is a means to an end, as the Bible teaches us, then therefore we must start thinking and operating in that way, even if it's progressively over time. And then put you in a situation, because quite frankly, not everybody is in a position, as you just mentioned, to give 5, 10, 15, or 20%. A lot of consumer debt, living above your means. Like We need to fix a lot of things before we even get to the giving conversation, because I want you to give in a way that is a blessing to you and others, not in a way that puts you in hardship and increases your debt load and potentially takes you down a different path. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is if for some reason that is a challenge right now, still find other ways to give. Because the other thing I think that we lose track of is we look at the tithe as income. And like you said, it's from the principle of increase and growth and You may have skills, you may have knowledge, you may have time, you may have other things that you can give that still add value. Again, if you're a CPA, go volunteer or do some pro bono work for a nonprofit. You know, that, that, because trust me, they need an accountant. I've never seen a nonprofit that's not, oh yeah, we don't need that. No, they need it. That kind of thing. There's other ways you can find to give that aren't just writing a check. It was the other thing I would challenge. So let's talk more about the kids thing. How do you see it as what do we do for those folks that have kids that are thinking about generational wealth in that way? Because there's other ways to look at mm-hmm. passing on wealth, but let's focus on the parents out there. How do you keep your kids from being the trust fund babies? How do you keep, how do you pass on the values of being wise with money? I think it it depends on the stage of life that your kid is at, right? So what you would do with a a four-year-old or five-year-old is very different to what you would do with a 17-year-old or a 30-year-old. So let's start with when kids are young. So I have two kids, one in the way. So I have a five-year-old, soon-to-be five-year-old boy and a three-year-old girl, and we have a baby coming soon. And when I, when I, teach them about money, I do it in age appropriate ways, right? So we're not talking about large amounts of money. We're talking about dimes, quarters, pennies, but I'm teaching my son from early on that money comes from work. So he has his little chores that really don't take that much effort, but there are certain things that my kids do because they're part of the family and they, it's part of their contribution as a family member, like helping mama to cook or helping clean up after themselves. But there are some things that we incentivize by giving them a little bit of money that they can then use to buy their own toy. And 
because there's not enough money every week to buy something, they have to exercise that muscle of saving. They have to split their money between, I'm going to give a quarter this Sunday, and that's something I do every Sunday because I make money every week, and have some money that I save for a particular goal or toy. And then there's some money that I spend. And you cannot give everything, save everything, or spend everything in a given week. You have to split it somehow. Maybe they buy a little snack, an extra treat that they buy with their own money. But what that does is it associates earning money with performing an action, being rewarded by doing something, and ideally something with excellence. So that's like what you do at the very, very early years. And as kids grow, you also increase their level of responsibility. Hey, if you broke something by accident, that's okay. I'll take care of it. If you broke something because you were reckless after I had told you to not do this or that, then now you're going to have to pay for part of that. Maybe it's a $10 houseware. Hey, we're going to split the cost. You're going to pay 2 to $3 and then I'll pay the rest because you don't have enough in savings to really buy this big object, right? But that's another example where they say, okay, now my actions or misdeeds have consequences and those consequences translate themselves into money. And then as they grow and become teenagers, you have to also build on those steps to then increase their level of ownership over everything they do. Like maybe that's paying for a cell phone or maybe that's when they start driving, hey, you got to work now, you got to pay for part of your insurance. It's all about progressive responsibility and developing habits that last a lifetime. So what's ha- what's happen- what happens is at age 21, 22, a kid graduates college, and then one of two things is going to happen. There's no middle ground. They're either going to go on their own and be productive members of society, right? Or they're going to move into your basement. That's why I don't have a basement. No. <laughs> your shed. Or your, oh, darn it. <laughs> you know, your man cave, your she shed, whatever it is that you have, whatever space. Spare bedroom. But, yep. <laughs> yeah. What you're trying to do is you're trying to build those principles so that when they stand on their own, they can operate out of muscle memory and out of recall memory instead of trying to figure out, oh, my goodness, I'm 21 years old. How do I write a budget? I've never mm-hmm. called a bank to ask any question. How do I divvy up my paycheck? All those things have already been taught if you've started early. Scott, I recognize that a lot of people listening to this podcast do not have the luxury of time anymore. And they have already passed those years. And now they're looking for how to train their adult children. And what I encourage them to do is, Maintain a good relationship above all things, because that is the primary vehicle to transfer. Also, as you make large financial decisions, bring in where appropriate and at the right time, your adult children to be part of that conversation. If you're giving X amount of dollars to a number of charities, maybe bring in your adult children and say, hey, guys, like I'm seeing this as this family's wealth. And we are going to dedicate these resources to do X, Y, and Z with these different organizations. What do you think? Do you have any organizations that you would like me to consider as part of this decision? Give them a seat at the table so that as you're managing that multi-million net worth in your 60s and 70s, they're seeing you, how you operate, how you manage this money. 
And when they get then get that money transferred, they'll feel that burden of the values that their parents put on this. And they're not going to go out and just burn it at, in, in Rodeo Drive and, and buy a whole bunch of things, right? They're going to be like, oh, man, my daddy taught me that I have to be giving some of this income every year. Hey, how am I going to do that this year now that daddy's gone, right? And, and having those, again, recall memory and muscle memory is way more effective then try to learn something new when you have to actually get it done. So that's what I encourage people to think about, especially if they are already in that later phase in life. But I would add to that, I think, you know, as well, you're getting to see how they think about money and what are they viewing. And I say that not in a gotcha way, not in a, oh, you're not doing what I want you to do, therefore I'm not going to give you money. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, not every child is bent the same way. Not every child has the same. You, you have situations where you have a child that has special needs. How are you going to set up the situation to take care of them? And they may not be capable of managing the money piece. And what does that look like? So it gets very complicated very quickly. Yeah. And you've. it's almost like if you can do that while there's still training wheels and practice time, even if they're an adult, you get to see how that plays out and then develop the plan accordingly, if that makes sense. And it's all about transparency, Scott. I've worked with people that are the second generation of like very successful businesses. Like we're talking 20 million plus, right? And they have no idea what their parents' state plan says. They have no idea how much money they need to plan for because they have their own estate plan and they're successful in and of themselves, like they have their own stuff going on and all of a sudden a parent passing trips all sorts of alarms and triggers with the irs and with their estate taxes and everything and they have no idea what's going to happen and i think transparency is so important especially as you get older because incapacity starts to rear its head we got to recognize that we're not going to live forever and setting our families to to be wise stewards means you're training them and you're helping make their life easier to not leave a mess for people to find out paper receipts under your mattress and to know where your accounts are. And by the way, regardless of the size of what's being passed on or lack of have those conversations, yes. <laughs> you know, the whole reading of the will in the lawyer's office that happens in movies is not, re <laughs> don't do that. That's a, that's not a, that's not a good thing. I think people see that in movies and they think, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. It's like, no, that, this is bad. Don't do that. That is an example in, mov in movies about what not to do. Because just do about that. every scene that starts that way ends with somebody gets murdered or something. Somebody gets yeah. murdered or something because you know, there's disagreement about how the money got yeah. divvied up. Yeah. And yeah, I think that it's important for the parents. It's also important for the children to, un to have those conversations. And I will tell you that I've also coached people that need to have that conversation with their parents. And that's a tough conversation, too, when you're the one starting it as the kiddo of mm -hmm. not, I want to control you, mom and dad, but I just want to know what's going on. What do I need to plan for? What is it going to look like? Because not everyone wants to have that conversation. So with that in mind, when, when do people 
I think a big question that a lot of folks have is now they see there's robo-advisors and there's do-it-yourself firms and there's do-it-your-own-way things, and then there's professional CFPs and others that work with people in a professional capacity around wealth and management. What are some of the things that people need to think about when they might want to engage with a professional and sit down with them versus, quote, DIY it? Yeah, so... I have two answers to your question. So there's an objective criteria and then there's a subjective criteria. So subjectively, I'll start there. Do you have the willingness to do it? You may have, you may have assets or may have income. You just focus on your career and your profession and you don't want to deal with this money thing. Like you're just not interested in doing the nitty gritty and monitoring your portfolio day to day. Do you have the ability? So you may want to do this, but reasonably, do you have the level of education and are you, do you have the time to, to go learn what you need to do to actually get it done? And then there's the, there, there's the desire, right? You may have, hey, push comes to shove. I can do this on my own. I'm smart enough to get it done, but I just want to have somebody to do it for me. It's like a home improvement project. Yeah, I'm willing to paint a I have the knowledge of how to do it, but if I can afford to have somebody else do it for me, why would I do it myself? So I think those are the subjective criteria that people need to walk themselves through to understand willingness, ability, and desire. But then there's some objective criteria where your hand may be forced, so to speak, depending on your life situation. Usually people start coming to me and the type of service that I offer when they exceed around $250,000 in income or when their net worth exceeds a million dollars. And the reason for that is because on the income side, your tax situation starts getting complicated. And usually your compensation includes some sort of equity. So stock options, restricted stock, which are very complex to figure out on your own. Very few people earn over 250 in straight cash. That's relatively rare. And then people who, may, who have over $1 million in net worth then start exceeding their own comfort level with managing their life savings by themselves without professional assistance, right? When you're building, you're at 100, 200, 300. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. A lot of people listening to the show probably don't have more than 50 to their name. But Really, when you start hitting that 1 million is when there is a little bit of a voice inside of you that starts doubting that you can actually do this on your own because there's a lot of money on the line and any mistake has multiple zeros after it. So that's when people usually also start looking at somebody like me that can have a steady hand and have the experience to help them manage and not outlast their money. Their biggest concern is, hey, I don't have another 30 years to build another million. Like this million has to last me until I die. And that's when they come to me. You also have a little bit of the Goldsmith has a book written for leaders, but I think it applies to money management too. The, and the title of the book is What Got Me Here Won't Get Me There. And the idea is if you get to middle manager level, but you want to be a CEO, you got to learn a whole nother set of skills. The skills you've learned to get you to this point aren't the same skills that'll get you to the next point. And I think when you start getting to that 250K income, 1 million net worth, yeah, but there's another set of skills you need to learn to get to the next level or get to the next uh, travel point, so to speak. And 
oftentimes having a professional in your corner helps with that. And use me as an example. We, My wife and I use a professional. I have the knowledge to do it. I have the background that I could do it. I have... To, it's just, it's easier. It's more efficient. And I don't have to go spend time and energy there. I could go spend my time and energy over here. I'm going to do that every single day. It's like hiring someone to mow your yard versus mowing it yourself or paint a room. Exactly. Like you said, it's like, there's times where it's just, yeah, I could do it, but I really don't want to. So here you go. <laughs> One question I ask all of my guests, my brand is inspired stewardship. I run things through that lens of stewardship. You've used that word a couple of times as we were talking today. What, as I've worked with it, I found out that's a word kind of like leadership that a lot of people use, but they sometimes mean it different things by it. So what does the word stewardship mean to you? And what is the impact of that word had on your life? To me, stewardship is, if I go to the root of the word, which is a steward, right? A steward is somebody who manages an estate or resources on behalf of an owner. And I think the word stewardship helps me maintain a healthy view on what my relationship with money should be. God has given me resources, whether that's my talent or revenue or my family, my children, right? He's given me those things, but I'm not the owner of those things. I am expected to take some of the benefit of that for my own enjoyment in, re in, in the reward for the work I'm putting in. But I'm really managing these resources on God's behalf. So as I make decisions throughout my life, whether that is buying X, selling Y, moving here, doing that, am I seeking God's direction in managing the resources that he has given me? And have, having that constant reminder that, hey, I'm not the owner of this. I'm not the owner of this. I am just a manager, <laughs> helps me maintain that healthy view of money. Because believe it or not, even though I live and breathe this stuff all day long, I also need to remind myself of these principles. I need to get them done myself. I have to eat my own cooking. <laughs> like I tell my clients, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I'm not doing so long as it actually applies, right? Everybody's different in terms of their life. Sure, right. Some those general principles, I have to apply myself to. I have to live below my means. I have to maintain low or no levels of debt. I have to invest. I have to make sacrifices. So all those things apply to everybody. But that's what stewardship means to me. It's putting the owner in the right seat and taking the manager's seat to have a healthier view on money decisions. So this is my favorite question that I like to ask Though some guests tell me it's not their favorite, so we'll see how you feel about it. If I invented this magic machine, and with the power of this machine, I was able to pluck you from the seat where you sat today and transport you up into the future, maybe 150, 250 years, and through the power of this machine, you were able to look back and see your entire life and see all of the relationships, all of the connections, all of the impacts and ripples that you've left behind what impact do you hope you've left behind in the world? That is a very insightful question and something that is a little bit difficult to, to answer, which is why I'm, not, why I'm not surprised some people don't like it. <laughs> but I actually really do like it because I spend a lot of my time thinking of the future. There's a lot of research and a lot of work that's been done in the area of um, belief, believers, and what likelihood do you have of having a 
either believing or God honoring or positive offspring versus having having a, a family tree that perhaps is not what you hope for. And more often than not, people who are doing the right things throughout their life and transferring those values end up having very good levels of success with their heirs and, and subsequent family generations. So I would say my number one investment in the future is my children. So if I can do everything that I can to teach them everything that I know and to pass the values and to teach them and raise them in the fear of the Lord, then my hope is that is all I need to do and they'll take the baton. And when I come back 200 years from now, if we're still on this earth and not in God's presence, I can look back to them and I can see a direct line between me and all the subsequent people that have lived up to that value system. And that's it. There's money's going to disappear. My name is going to be forgotten. There's, it is highly unlikely that I will be one of the 1% or less of humanity that has their own Wikipedia entry. I, it's highly unlikely that I'll be that. But what I can guarantee you, though, is that if I make the right investment, three out of four of, those, of all those people 200 years from now are probably going to live up to the same value system. And that's my hope, is that I leave a legacy of values. So as we kick off the new year, what's coming next for you and your firm as you continue on this journey? This is an exciting moment for Abundant Advisors because I started this firm with the idea of creating a small book feel for my clients, and I wanted to focus on serving a small number of families. As far as my aspiration in the short term, I'm probably about halfway through to, to completing the number of families that I plan to serve directly. And I think that's going to elicit a lot of questions, right? Like, where does God want me to go? Does God want me to stop at where I'm at and really just invest and influence these families that he's put in my way? Do I need to expand and hire other people to teach the same financial planning principles and be able to bless even more people? Should I be investing more in serving people at scale where I'm not putting the actual time off my schedule, but I'm producing content and value for people to consume while I can serve that small group of clients. So it's a lot of questions that the near future brings to me. And I think that'll all depend on where God takes the business over the next 18 months. Because if we get to that point within that time frame, I think it's going to be along the way, God is going to make it very clear as to where he wants me to go. And that's going to determine largely what the future will look like. And then on a personal level, our family's growing from four to five, right? So we've gotten used to just being my wife and I, my two kids, and now we have a third on the way. And that is going to change substantially the dynamics of our home. So we're going to have to learn new habits, new routines, how to invest in each child to the degree that we can to set them up for success. And then what does life look like at the other end of that transition? So that's like what the immediate future has for me and the business. You can follow Leo on LinkedIn is Leo Marte. That's M-A-R-T-E or find more about him and the services that he offers over on his website at AbundantAdvisors.com. Of course, I'll have links to that over in the show notes as well. Leo, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listener? 
So for those of you who are thinking about your financial journey and you've heard about the work that I do, and perhaps you're either not ready to start working with an advisor, but you're still building your way up there, or you prefer to do it yourself and you are very comfortable and have the willingness, the desire, and the ability to do it. You know, I've developed some content in the form of a masterclass that can help people understand those biblical principles as they relate to the foundational aspects of financial planning. And the easiest way to access that is to go to abundantadvisors.com forward slash course. And that'll take you to the course page. You can see everything that I offer there. It's a pretty robust course. We have about 12 different um, units within the course. It's about five hours of video content, DIY templates, tools. You get to peek into the, into the pilot's cabin where I show you some of the tools that I put into practice with my own clients. And that's my way to, A, make this information more broadly available to people that are just not able to afford working with me, but also because I do feel a calling to share some of these biblical planning principles to a broader audience of Christians who are looking for that information. And hey, if you're not even ready to go into a masterclass and commit to that, we also have a quick start on my website as well. You can go to abundantadvisors.com forward slash quick start. That one is completely free. And it's a shorter version of the larger masterclass that gives you that introductory principles. And then when you're ready, you can move up to the masterclass and then commit to learning those principles to have an abundant future. So I hope that everyone who's listening to this gives it a try and checks it out because I think there is responses for the people that have gone through it. People are really excited and appreciate the knowledge they gain. They really are on their way to transform their finances. Awesome. Of course, I'll add links to both of those in the show notes as well, but you can find that at AbundantAdvisors.com course for the full course or AbundantAdvisors.com slash quick start for the quick start guide. Leo, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Scott. Thanks so much for listening to the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. As a subscriber and listener, we challenge you to not just sit back and passively listen, but act on what you've heard and find a way to live your calling. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor. Go over to inspiredstewardship.com slash iTunes rate, all one word iTunes rate. It'll take you through how to leave a rating and review and how to make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so that you can get every episode as it comes out in your feed. Until next time, invest your time, your talent, and your treasures, develop your influence, and impact the world.